0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor. For this week's edition, we recorded in front of a live audience at the Film Society of Lincoln Center in an event called Film Comment Live. The special podcast was part of Film Comment Selects, the magazine's annual film series at the Film Society. Our participants discussed the work of two very different directors, Terrence Davies and Andre Zulawski, both featured in Film Comment Selects. Davies' gorgeous new period film, Sunset Song, opened Film Comment Selects, and he also directed The House of Mirth and The Long Day Closes. Zulawski, who passed away just last week, was the subject of a Film Comment Select spotlight, including his final film, Cosmos, and his extraordinary war film debut, The Third Part of the Night. We now go to the audio recorded on Saturday. So, hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor of Film Comment, and
1: today I'm joined by uh, Margaret Barton Fumo. I've been contributing to Film Comment for about ten years, and I've edited a collection of interviews with Paul Verhoeven. Should be coming out in the fall or winter.
2: Uh, Nicholas Serpole, the interim editor of Film Comment.
3: I'm Eric Hines. I'm a writer as well as a curator, uh, associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image.
4: I'm Michael Keresky, um editor
3: of Reverse Shot,
4: which is a publication of the Museum of the Moving Image, and um, I'm a contributing writer at the Criterion Collection. And, and film I, comment. And I'm a, c- a contributing writer to film comment. Yes, and um, I, was, I was saving the best for last. Oh, sorry. Um, and. Stepped uh, <laughs> up. And I am currently director of publications and marketing for the Metrograph Theater.
3: I also write for Film Comment, too. But see, I didn't say that because last time I was on a podcast, Violet said, you can say two things about yourself. <laughs> and I like, snuck in the third thing about like having a column at Film Comment. She's like, that was three. I was like, so are you?
0: <laughs> well, no, because you're supposed to highlight the Film Comment. But anyway, that's fine. So tonight we're going to be discussing... Um, Two filmmakers who were in Film Comet selects: Terrence Davies, whose uh, *Sunset Song* opened Film Comment selects, and um, Mr. Now I'm not gonna now I'm not gonna say it right. Andre Zulowski, I'm not even gonna try to say it right, uh, whose new film *Cosmos* uh, showed last night, and we're doing a little mini sidebar of his films, which uh, screened today as well. So,
2: on on the occasion of new restorations that have been done of those films.
0: Yes. So. So, I guess maybe it would be nice to start with Davies because he started the series, and Michael literally wrote a book about Mr. Davies. <laughs> so, um, could you sort of describe the film for people who maybe haven't seen it? Because um, it's, a- it <coughs> it's an adaptation of a Lewis Grass Gibbon novel.
4: Lewis Grass Gibbon. Yeah, yeah it's, from the, it's a novel from the early 30s, and it um, takes place in a Scottish village. And it's all about um, a young woman who, uh, to, to put it, to reduce it a little bit, is overcoming a very abusive father. And um, slowly she sees everybody in her life fall away until she's basically left alone taking care of the family farm.
0: Um, could you sort of talk maybe about how Sunset Song fits into his larger, um, his work at large?
4: It mean It fits pretty well. It fits well into his... Oeuvre in kind of obvious ways and maybe not such obvious ways. Obvious ways being um, if he doesn't make movies about his childhood in Liverpool, which is like half of his films, then he's adapting literature or plays. Um, And they're they're always period pieces. He's very interested in the past. And they always have um, strong, central female protagonists that he identifies with, which is the case with Sunset Song as well. But I think that... Sunset Song. Uh, it deviates a bit in how linear it is. A lot of his films are structured in without um, you know straightforward chronology. This time it just kind of moves straight ahead. The, 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 this is probably the after House of Mirth the most linear. Um, but I think that there's um, it, it's just the, the the pace of it. Um, is very Davey, is the way he's using the camera. These slow pans across rooms, the way that time seems to stand still but move strangely fast from scene to scene. Like, you know, there's a scene where a character goes to war and it cuts and years have gone by because you see a child growing up and he comes back. But within the scenes and within the shots, the camera is very still. So it's almost like um, things are always moving at weird um, paces.
0: Eric, you were nodding profusely. Did have you read? Have you read the original novel?
3: Oh no, no, no. I've not read the original novel. No, um, but I saw the film with Michael in Toronto, and I've been I, I'm nodding just because I love hearing Michael talk about Terrence Davies. Um, but uh, but I was nodding probably most profusely when he was talking about how though the film's very is is linear and and, and somewhat rare in, in Davies cinema for that the way that time is handled makes it feel as if it's not linear. As as you say, it sort of stops and starts, and you don't quite know how much time has elapsed in between certain sequences, um, and how a certain state of mind that that puts you in um, is Zuri Davies, I think. Um, And it's exciting, I thought it was exciting, to recognize that it was actually chronological, that it was moving in a linear fashion, but it didn't feel like it while I was watching it. I I felt a little bit lost in time, uh, which uh, that was, to me, I loved that experience. It's almost like the payoff of knowing that it was linear, even though it didn't feel like it was, um, was even greater than, than, I don't know, than one way or the other.
0: And I guess within the, Sort of, how would you place this film in, in a larger understanding of like a you know period dramas or you know within you know genre
4: um, like w- within specifically the way Davies deals with yeah period films and adaptations yeah um, I mean it's it's he uh, he's usually making passion projects uh, he's and that's why it's always taken him so long to get things funded I mean the amazing thing is right now he's having this incredible fruitful period which nobody ever would have expected I mean it was. It would usually be about seven years at least for him to get something made. I mean, House of Earth was 2000. He wasn't able to get anything funded to 2008 after that. Um, and then D- Deep Blue Sea was four more years out. It's it's a very difficult for him to get funding, but right now he has another movie right on the heels of this, which just debuted in Berlin last week called A Quiet Passion about Emily Dickinson. Um, so th- And these two films actually were passion projects he had he's a fan of the book and he's been wanting to adapt it for years he just it took that long to get the money together why is this a fruitful time why is it happening that there's two in succession which is so rare for him i I really i really don't know it's just um there seems to be a resurgence of interest
2: in him yeah i'm not i'm not sure quite sure of the answer for that either because in the past the british source the source of british sources of funding that he had i mean one shtick he had in interviews was giving the Ridiculous reasons they had given him for why they couldn't fund
4: something, right? He's always been very vocal about that
2: Yeah, yeah, Uh, but uh, but yeah now he seems to have hit I mean like maybe it maybe it helped that quiet passion has a bit of I don't know notable talent in it or star Presence in it I guess
4: but then house of mirth was actually a success and it had a lot of stars in it But he couldn't get anything funded for years after that he there there are three or four adaptations He's tried to make since that that he never got off the ground. Well, one of them was since that song so it finally happened Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, the thing tying them together are the themes that I talked about before and the, and the way he deals with characters, especially female characters. But he just, um, he just has this, these handfuls of films, these ideas that he has in his head that he's been wanting to do for a long time. A Sunset Song is something that he just really wanted to get out of his system. And I actually think it's very important that he did, and that might, that might account for the, for the fruitful period after this. And now he feels freed up to do a lot of things. And there's a, um, a great book by Richard McCann called Mother of Sorrows, which is actually set in Maryland, that he uh, is planning to adapt next. And I hope it happens, because it's an incredible, incredible book.
0: What is it about?
4: Um, it's uh, about two gay brothers growing up in the 50s in Maryland and the relationship with the mother.
3: It's a, a devastating book. Just Everyone should read it. Uh, Hearing Michael talk, I was thinking about the troubles of of Davies making cinema, and I think the older that I get and the more you realize how how business in film often works and the things that we celebrate most uh, often as cinephiles in terms of cinema are not necessarily the things that people fear are the most financially. Uh, reliable and so I think about and I, I'm thinking about that in terms of uh, reading again uh, Michael's fantastic book and the sort of the the word that you use a lot the, the the queerness of his cinema and 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 how uh, there's a classicism to his work that is incredibly accessible and it's romantic often and there are this, there's a language there that 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 is exulting in cinema that people can relate to and I think can play well but it's always filtered through him there's this personal aspect of this that I think is maybe it's, it, it makes it a bit strange you know and I think that's it's a great appeal of why he's an amazing filmmaker but I think that that's probably to to not to project to inappropriately but like why that makes him maybe a risky bet financially or or in terms of the economics of cinema because it's it's not going to be what we expect that cinema to be it's going to be filtered through him
4: yeah, I mean the the queerness that I talk about is is, is two pronged. I mean, there's the the obvious. He's a gay filmmaker. He's made a lot of films about gay with gay themes about gay characters, usually about himself, and they're not ever trendy about gay themes, um, which is actually another problem about him ever being able to make project, projects, raising money for projects, is that he's not considered um, on point or on trend ever, um, either in the material he does or in the way that he deals with sexuality. Um, but then also queerness in terms of the odd bearing and um, emotional tenor of his movies, which is um, it's it, it's it's this like staticness. Like I said, it's a staticness that's, that's moving. He's obsessed with time, so he's moving forward, but everything seems caught in this one moment. Um, almost like he there it things he's never been able to overcome personally, and he's uh, emotionally and he's very open about talking about that. Um, like Long Day Closes, his his you know incredible. Masterpiece is very much about um, being stuck in one particular time, a beautiful and tragic time, um, which was uh, in that case the years between his father dying and before puberty puberty set in, which he thinks is the most beautiful and terrible time of his life because it was everything was moving and felt right and he knew that it was going to end. He says he even as a child knew this was all going to end and that's what The Long Day closes is about. Um, so, yeah, so there's a. Long, that, that movie is a good example of how you can watch his movies and feel this strange mixture of joy and sadness constantly. I think Sunset Song carries that tradition. Oh, absolutely. But, but it's also an incredibly violent movie. I think it's probably his most violent movie.
0: Well, and I think visually, um, his approach to the Scottish countryside is really phenomenal. Do you feel like um, his sort of visual language has expanded or is bearing on the same things or g- going somewhere? Else. I mean
4: I think every great artist expands a bit with every new project so he's doing something he's never done before he's never he, he's usually working with interiors. so it's amazing to see these incredible gigantic vast landscape shots shot on 65 millimeter film the interiors were digital it's all on DCP so you can't tell but right. it'd be nice <laughs> to see a print one day um, so it does feel different but as soon as you get into those interiors it just feels so incredible, Davies. I mean, this, yeah. the way that he has uses candlelight, the way that the camera just slowly drifts around scenes, the way he has characters sing entire folk songs from beginning to end, it's, he, he always puts himself in there. Um, so even though he's adapting relatively faithfully, um, he's, um, he's making a, a Davies statement.
2: And, and there's that especially beautiful scene in the church that's, that's yeah, 100% uh, Davies, yeah. pure. <laughs>
4: it's almost like a, a relief, right? Yeah, yeah, y- no, you, it was. This is what I came for. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible scene. The, the, and also, uh, not only is it um, the way the camera moves and the way you hear this entire hymn and the way the light and shines into the church at the as, just as the song ends and the camera is slowly drifting into the um, the minister, when he starts to talk, you realize that this is also so much about his religious skepticism because... The, the minister goes on to talk about how um, God has has, has um, decreed that this is a, a good war and a just war, and that all men should go or they're cowards. So, I mean, he he has a very uh, negative feeling to put it lightly about religion. So, well, the father
0: too. I mean, who is sort of made a name for himself playing total bastards, total abusive bastards. Peter Mullen. Yes. <laughs> But,
3: but even he, like I mean, he's so charismatic and watchable. I oh, mean, yeah, which is yeah. so, which is very Davies then too, right? I mean, there's this this heart devil character that's also like probably often the most appealing person on screen a lot of the time.
4: Yeah. Oh, and it's yeah, and it's he's he's so similar to the Pete Postlethwaite yes. um, yes. character in Distant Voices, Still Lives, who is who is literally Davies' father. So, yes, this, this abusive tyrant of a father is, is his father. And there are similar shots, even uh, in this, from, from distant voices, where um, there's a scene where one, someone in the family, I think it's the son, um, is arguing with the father, and his response is Peter Mullen's response is just to slowly light his pipe. And the camera just stays on him as he lights it and puffs in, and then he just gets up and walks out. And it's very similar to some things that Pete Postlethwaite was doing in *Distant Voices*, where he would just respond by looking into a fireplace, picking up the poker, and moving the ashes around. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very clearly a Davies film, but it's doing a lot of different things too.
0: Well, speaking about acting, uh, the lead car- the the lead uh, female actress, she's actually known as a as a model professionally, or like she, this is sort of her big. I guess, big breakout role. Can you sort of talk maybe a little bit more about... You should pronounce her
2: name because I
3: know you don't want to, but you should try
2: (laughs) dancing around the issue. This is going to be the pronunciation podcast. The name looks harder to pronounce than it actually is. Well, why don't you
0: say it? It's
4: it's Agnes Dane.
0: Agnes Dane. Agnes Dane. Which
4: is a great name. Agnes Um, Dane, great name. (laughs) It sounds like Agnes Day. (laughs) Yes. um, I'm sorry for calling you out. It
3: was just clear that you didn't want to say the name. (laughs) Um,
0: It's all about having fun.
4: She's uh, she's phenomenal. She, she yes, she was a model. Yeah. Um, I remember I interviewed him in uh, twenty twelve for the book, and he first was talking about her. He was very excited, and that's how he talks about his upcoming projects. How excited he is about the lead actress, because it happened again later with Cynthia Nixon for Quiet Passion. I uh, when I saw Sunset Song in Toronto, I went up to, to congratulate him because he was in uh, he was there. There was an after party, um, and. I said, congratulations, the film is so beautiful. And he just instantly, he, he changed the subject. He said, I want to talk about Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> I just finished shooting Quiet Passion. She is amazing. He can't stop talking about Cynthia Nixon. He thinks that she is... The, he, and the same thing that happened with Gillian Anderson in House of Mirth. He gets um, very excited about the, the the actresses, specifically, that he works with. So he was very happy about Agnes Dane. He thought that he, 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 didn't, he had never seen her before. He never... You know, he didn't know about her modeling career. He just um, was. She had been recommended to him because she had the right look,
2: mm-hmm. and he fell in love with her based on her look. Which, in, in, in an interview about it, I think he, he thinks that she she talks about it like she has sort of old-fashioned, an old-fashioned look. Which she looks like an actress from another era, or even just a person from another era, um, which is I don't know. I think it's kind of true.
4: And she has a, she has a really nice um, quality where. Even when, I mean, it's a silent, it's a silent film quality. Even when she's not speaking, there's, a, there's an intensity to her look. And um, it, 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 I, I felt it even more the second time while I was watching it. She really carries the movie without her having to say very much a lot of the time.
0: Well, speaking of speaking, it might be a good time to switch over to the other literary adaptation that's at, that was at Film Comment Selects uh, Cosmos, which is by Andre Zulowski. An adaptation of a bit old Gumbrovich novel uh margaret you sort of you interviewed Zelowski a few years ago. Did you sort of talk about you know what' is your you know what immediately sort of struck you about the film and sort of it's his last film, and how does it sort of fit into a larger context of everything he's done you know as a novelist as a filmmaker, et cetera
1: um I think the Gombrowicz, Gumbro- oh, ugh, <laughs> whatever was um <laughs> Right off the bat is a is a, a great fit for Zywowski. Um, not only is of you know one of the best Polish authors, but just little details of it down to um, sort of uh, irreverence, you know food fighting, little plays on words, uh, dramatic things like that. Um, I think it may have the fact that it's a literary ab- adaptation may have helped take the film in a certain direction, give it a little bit more of a shape than I think some of his other films have been. Um, but obviously he really put an interesting spin on it that we also haven't seen before where he inter- in- inserted all these like comments on uh, new films, mentioning Star Wars and this and that. And I didn't really know what to do with that. I liked it, I thought it was funny. Um, but that was something that struck me as is a new thing for him, as well as the fact that um, it really stars uh, a man. The man, the male character, really occupies the space that you know his actresses have in past films.
0: Could you sort of summarize, it, or try to summarize what happens?
1: Well, not much, really. I mean, it. <laughs> Nothing and everything. (laughs) Um, Two young men stay in a sort of uh, inn and um, run by two... Run by uh, Lan Renee's muse, Sabina Zima, and her sort of office rocker husband. They're two beautiful women who are also there, one of which has a sort of grotesque mouth, which also I thought was just a great... You know, I feel like Jaworski Z- w- could have come up with that on his own, but he didn't. It's it's a big part of the novel. Um, hijinks ensue, <laughs> uh, but there's throughout the film there's there's like a, a sort of um, ethereal kind of mystery, uh, mystery of hanging animals, of sort of cosmic synchronicities. Um, that come together here and there and then drift apart and kind of take the film on on a a certain course and i guess no i don't want to spoil it uh, no. no spoilers yes. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers
2: for all the for all the fanboys that don't want to have their <laughs> no hate mail on this laszkie movie spoiled for them um, well, I, I mean, I I thought the movie was really interesting. I was a big fan of the novel or novella, at the, at, because, I mean, the the novella, the kind of premise of it is that, I mean, yeah, these 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 two guys go to this inn, and it's and it's basically, as a text, it's about characters who are trying to decode the world, to kind of make sense of what's around them, trying to put order on a world around them. That is throwing these weird signs at them. One of them being it was a cat, right? It's a hang-
1: oh, hanging sparrow, hanging sparrow, and then sparrow, chicken, and then a cat. Yeah, animals
2: yeah. do not fare well um, in in this uh, unpredictable landscape. But I, I just really love that idea of, of that that the whole world is something you put order on, and and that's a type of violence itself. And I mean understandably, they kind of go nuts trying to come to grips with that idea. And the way he interprets that, the way Zulawski interprets that in the movie, I thought, is very interesting. I, I mean, I, I felt like a lot of the strange things that were happening in the prose of the novel, he kind of translated into the strange variety of performance styles in, in the movie, um, where they're always, it's always kind of like rope-a-dope. They're always just kind of trying to keep you off balance at any given time, and also the way it's all stitched together. And, you know, the main character talking to the camera and just everyone just acting. To be fair, I think everyone's kind of off their rocker. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. For me, it was, it was, I don't know what successful adaptation means, but for me, it was a very interesting adaptation and one where I, I can always go back to the book and enjoy it in, a, in another way now. And I think that's part of his power as a filmmaker is, you know, re-imag- imagining and reimagining a world with that intensity and vividness.
0: Yeah. Because, I mean, performance is such, like, that style of hysterical performance is such an integral part of Zulowski films and that in here, it's, some characters get so hysterical that they literally, like, stop and they freeze and they can't cope and, like, their body just shuts down on some some level. So maybe, like, talk about, you know, um, some other films that are here. Like, I obviously, I'm thinking of, like, um, The Devil, the way performance functions there.
1: Did any of you go to the Cosmos screening last night? It was pretty great. And uh, the, the q and I thought was really wonderful, and the actor was really a hoot. And I think that one of the big re- revelations of the Q&A was that talked about how Zawowski, um watches The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> because that blew my mind in a way. I, guess. I mean, I've never seen the the show but from what i know of it Bazinga, that's all it you was know. surprising um we,
3: we could have an entire podcast of great filmmakers <laughs> watching bad tv yes.
1: but it came up because uh daniel bird was trying to get the actor to describe you know jewowski's direct you know way of directing actors and getting performances out of them they were talking about a particular scene where his character is just really excitingly Banging on a door, and apparently on that television show, people bang on doors all the time. I don't know. What <laughs> a lot of secret but inspiration for Cosmos. He <laughs> talked about how um, throughout the shoot, Jaworski was always throwing references at him of literature, you know, music, film, and, and a lot of them just sort of went over his head. But he 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 asked him, "Well, do you watch the Big Bang Theory?" And <laughs> he was like, "Well, yes, I do. I know that one." He's like, "Just do it like that." <laughs> wow, that's um, amazing. <laughs> so, for people who didn't miss out on the Q and A, I thought yeah. that was a, one of the interesting moments of it. But uh, about performances, it's uh, the performances in his films are a very strange thing, um, and people have a lot of theories about what they mean and what the intentions are. Jaworski um, has always said, and as he said to me, it's. He, it's not so much that he is directing actors and telling them to go wild or hysterical or over the top, it's that he's trying to elicit something from them that he equates with a certain type of truth that exists in all of us, and in particular in those specific actors or actresses. He feels that they have something within them that needs to come out and be expressed, um, that cannot be expressed in words, and uh, apparently it like a primal, some primal thing that we all share.
0: Cause I mean, a lot of his, you know, to speak of like possession, you know, what emotionally what's happening in that film, which is, I guess, I feel like most people have, the, out of any of his films, that's the one most most people have seen, or like, you know, the devil where it's like, I feel like so much of those moments that you're describing are related to, you know, a woman being raped or being sexually violated or being being treated subhumanly. So it's it is it is true and it is it is it does it's sort of bizarre and poignant, but that's sort of what his makes this film so riveting. But
3: well, there's an hysterical truth. Yeah. I, feel like. I mean, to, 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 you, I mean you mentioned possession, and that's the, certainly the film that I have the deepest relationship with of his films, and there was somebody. There was there was some conversation going on, on online about a lot of people are discover are discovering his films for the first time and and talking about like, like having a hard time accepting that film because of how hysterical it gets and and yet f- and for as for me I'm like oh I've been married I've been divorced that's exactly right <laughs> everything that happens and all the emotions that are expressed and how they're expressed in that film seems so incredibly true whether or not they're plausible or whether this is sort of recognizable reality in that sense like. Almost every expression and outburst, and the quote-unquote you know bad acting or extreme acting in there, oh, it just seems so entirely appropriate as a pure expression of of what it's like to be those people, and that, um, and to express very inarticulately express things that are not articulatable, whatever that cannot be articulated. Um, and so, there's something about that uh, that. There is a great truth to, to to what he's doing and and to the performances that he's getting out of actors.
1: Well, possession is one of his more fantastic films, the sort of science fiction element to it, um, but it is his maybe his most personal and most rooted in actual events, um, as he mentioned in the when I interviewed him um, specifically about his first marriage to the actress. Her last name is Brownneck. <laughs> but uh the woman who starred in uh The Third Part of the Night, I think she's in The Devil too. Um she was his first uh wife. He then moved to France to try to start his career there. He came back and um she apparently was addicted to drugs, I think, and kind of all over the place. He came home and his child was, you know, in the room alone. Kind of wandering around, his wife was sort of out of it, and that's exactly what happened to him in um, real life, and he somehow worked it into this film that has, you know, a alien with tentacles and you know a, a hysterical you know breakdown in a subway that is, supposedly stands for in, uh, uh miscarriage.
0: Well, it is sort of a miscarriage in the film, though, too, right? It's like so...
1: I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, miscarriage of the alien baby. <laughs>
3: I, mean, also, I just love how nakedly allegorical all that is. Like, it's, it's sci-fi. There but are it's, eggs breaking it's everywhere. It's barely yeah. sci-fi. Like, yeah. we all know exactly what's happening here. There's nothing that's... I don't know. I love how legible that is.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, I also just... I just... Yeah, and it's about... I, I just want to make sure that people know that the interview you're talking about was for Film Comet, and you can actually go read it. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's online. It's online. At so filmcomet.com. It's, it's a very interesting interview full of a couple of interesting revelations. Um, I don't know if they're on the level of uh, the Big Bang Theory. But, uh, yeah. um, but I, I mean, just about possession, I mean, I just love it as, like, kind of, yeah, the ultimate M or Foo, but, like, how Foo is it, really? It's, it's, I mean, it's pretty much... <laughs> just the way it is yeah. um, and I just like the quality of everyone in it that they like it's like in some way they've all been up for days and even the way the movie is shot feels that way too um, when I saw it just everything's I mean bright and too crisp and and the camera is constantly circling so like there's an inherent paranoia to, to the camera movement and the camera presence there are times where the camera just kind of rocks back and forth uh, in, in in the interiors, um, and and all of that. So it's it's the performances, it's the filmmaking, it's just all of it coming together. Um, it's just an unfor- unforgettable movie possession.
0: You were gonna say something.
2: Oh, I
4: was g- gonna say something completely um, irrelevant. Uh, that, that is, we wouldn't interject. have known. If, we wouldn't <laughs> have known if you hadn't said that, that. Is related to both film comment and Jalovsky, which is that um, over a decade ago when I was. Um, working at Film Comment, editing, um, there had been a piece about him. I remember this is the first time I had ever encountered the name, and I was very excited because the descriptions were so vivid. And uh, that's when I first read about any of his films, but uh, *On the Silver Globe* really stood out for me, just the way it was written about. Just as a testament to the power of great, vivid, detailed writing, and I just remember reading that there are scenes in which people are impaled. Uh, on gigantic spears, and I remember <laughs> reading that in 2003 and thinking, I really want to see that movie someday. And I just saw it today. Dreams <laughs> come all, true, everybody. After all these years, and those scenes do not disappoint. Well, t- we'll I can't describe. believe it. I didn't know it was going to be a crane shot. I did. I don't even know how they did that. I don't know if it
1: was made before or after *Cannibal Holocaust*. Too, <laughs> <someone> <laughs> who was? I'm uh, because oh, sure, it was shot in copying. '77,
4: right? And uh, finish in editing in 87.
2: This is a movie that has a sort of tortured production history. So. Torture is the, is the key word that's for true. everything involved. <laughs> tortured and, in and in torturing production history.
4: I enjoyed the film a lot. <laughs> but, um, but two thumbs up. <laughs> two, two severed th- thumbs yeah. up. <laughs> Hanging by a, two severed thumbs hanging by a tendon up can we talk about um, commonalities between Sunset Song and On the Silver Globe
0: absolutely the skepticism towards religion
3: ah there you go can I, before, before we move on to a topic I just want to mention because I don't know if the people who are listening to this at home know that we're in a public space right no no because I you I've, can
0: hear that it's an empty room <laughs>
3: I love because I love Absolutely. that it's public space because we have we have wonderful people here who are, who are, who are witnessing this spectacle um, <laughs> that are a part, I feel like are a part of this but I also there is an occasional clamor from, from, from the lobby, which I love because it reminds me of listening to WFAN when I was a kid in New York, and every once in a while they'd do a show from like Mickey Mantle's restaurant, which is actually not far that. from here on 59th Street, but it's, it's long gone. But they used to like do shows from Mickey Mantle's restaurant, and as a little kid on Staten Island I'd be like fantasizing about this amazing space where all these people were around watching them do a radio show, and this reminds me of that.
4: But Eric, they take that out in post now. <laughs>
0: And that, and that sweet memory will also be cut. <laughs> you better believe it.
2: <laughs> I liked it, and I remember those shows. Thank you. I listened as well. And I imagine what it would be like to have things clattering around me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think if I filibustered on this for another 15
2: minutes or so, you'd have to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> just keep interjecting while she's asking questions. That's <laughs> the
0: Margaret, you had mentioned before you're a big fan of that most important thing. And could you and which is you know the film that he made in France? could you talk about how does it unfortunately, we didn't include it in this series, but could you talk about it as
1: You could kind of link it to Davies maybe because of its status as a melodrama mm-hmm. um, And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm just really fond of that film it's maybe my favorite one of my favorites of his. Um, but sometimes it, it, I feel almost a little bit embarrassed in a way for being so fond of it because it's very manipulative with its music by George De La Rue and the way that it sort of imposes this feeling of romantic melodrama on you that you kind of look around and feel a little bit um, wishy-washy, maybe just sort of get sucked up in it. But there's a lot more going on than that um, in that film. Uh, it's also has a he is a very interesting approach to genre in it um like the criminals and sort of crime and thriller and melodrama he kind of lays it on thick in a very kind of cheap way i guess um but then within that there are these performances that are just amazingly profound um seem very true to life and are very moving and he sort of sticks them in these very odd movie with like uh really silly gangsters and pornographers and he always uses very red fake very fake looking blood and then will go really over the top with like the violence in it but in such a way that you you know that you're you're watching something um fake and i don't know every time i see that film i just sort of get more and more out of it have you, you guys have seen it too Okay. Been,
2: been a while, but but that that's also a movie where he he kind of injected some personal experience into it, right? I think this is from your interview, interview where I think he said something about. Oh yeah, 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 the, yeah, the, yeah. The pornographers. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: because the the main character played by um, Fabio Testi, who at the time was more of like a stuntman. That's another thing why I love it. He's 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 um, he was just sort of like a, you know, a kind of gruff Italian you know, big stuntman guy. And then Jaworski inserts him into this film and he turns him into this sort of, like, this sort of, like, um, uh, shy Ken doll, you know? <laughs> um, but he plays a um, a photographer who had been in um, Vietnam War and I think another war and he came back to Paris and just had to make a living. And it's something that Jaworski shows in several of his films whereas uh, photographers are kind of lower on the hierarchy of visual artists that photographers are kind of doing what they do just to kind of make a living implying that like film and maybe theater is a little bit higher up on that hierarchy Um, also he is working in pornography and it's funny to step back for a minute and see how much Zawofsky is a moralist I think in a lot of his films because from the outset they're just so they seem very over the top they seem violent they seem super sexual but um, he is very interested in morality and um, in that most important thing there are a few scenes that are just um, really uh, odd and shocking and it's he the photographer works for a um A gangster you know old-timey gangster photographing these like very weird and very depressing orgies Um, (laughs) so that the gangster can then of of wealthy influential people so that he can um, blackmail them and make money it's like a whole sick business you know and he juxtaposes that with Romy Schneider's character who is an actress and um, she also has to appear in these kind of like um, Sex exploitation or porn films that are beneath her, but because she, she has to make a living, and so these two characters are kind of drawn to, a, to each other in a very kind of sad, you know, way.
2: And, and I think I think he said in the in the interview that I don't know. He remembers encountering that, seeing people in, who immigrants to I guess Paris mm-hmm. it would have been who had to make a living that way. And a, again, <laughs> if, maybe if you didn't know that, you might not have guessed it, but. It's interesting that even in, in a movie that can seem so stylized, there's still very much personal experience going into it. Um, I mean, maybe that's a bit of, you know, uh, a commonplace to say that, but I'm still always interested sometimes when you can find that stuff out.
1: It's still not exploitative in any way. You know, there's a big difference between the the porn, the porn pornography or whatever that's going on in the film and Zawofsky filming it. Oh, right. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Could we maybe shimmy back over to Davies because and sort of discuss how, you know, romance and sex function in his films because he has a very sort of tortured relationship to his own sexuality, which is to read his quote on it is a total bummer.
4: Yeah, (laughs) it is a bummer. Um, but a but he's a, he, he's a, he's accepted that it's a bummer, and we all have, and it's fine. I was just, I got stuck on sad orgy for a second. I was thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about how it would be nice to see a not sad orgy in a movie. <laughs> I think I think they tend that's to be that's what pornos are. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that's what straight up pornos um, are. I think Short Bus was the only non-sad orgy that I've seen in a movie. Sure. Um, but yes, it's funny uh, that you brought that up because I was actually just thinking, we were, you were talking so much about violence and the way Jalowski represents violence and I was thinking about how Sunset Song is a very violent film too, though you know one wouldn't necessarily call it that, certainly in comparison. Um, but it's, it's a movie about war and it's a movie about what war does to men and how that affects women and how that affects children. And it's it's pretty brutal, actually. Um, and one of the most violent scenes is a is a is a rape scene. It's it's a discreetly shot, ultimately rape scene, but it doesn't dilute the violence and the power of it. It's the camera the camera. It's it's interesting also because the man is naked and the woman is clothed because um, it's a when the husband comes back from war he um, he's a changed man and he uh, he rapes his wife. And, he, and again, he's naked, she's not, and the camera, um, as he wrestles her to the floor, the camera d- kind of moves slowly down behind a bed. It's a very um, quietly shocking scene.
0: When the, um, her father rapes her mother, though, too, and that's shot in a very sort of discreet way. That sets a series of events in motion where it ends with the mother, her I mother mean, are you referring herself. to when, it's,
4: when what you're, you're hearing it basically from the children's point of view? Yeah. Through the wall? Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: Because I think that's sort of interesting to juxtapose, or at least that's what came to my mind to sort of juxtapose this.
4: They're all sort of, the whole thing is is about this cyclical nature of violence and certainly um, male violence. And um, you have all these matching things also with births, really very violent births, um, which is a nice connection to possession actually. Yes. (laughs) but <laughs> let's just make connections for no reason this um, thing
0: happened in this movie and another <laughs> thing happened in this movie they're totally related okay,
4: hello film twitter
3: finish what you were gonna say um
4: oh yeah at the beginning uh, when the mother is giving birth to the to twins um it's the whole thing is experienced um from the perspective of the family listening from the kitchen and, and the screams are so horrifying and brutal and then later when she gives birth we also see it from the point of view of, of the husband in the kitchen while she's screaming from the other room. So um, it's, it's not the usual joy of life yeah. sort of birthing scene that you, that you would see in a lot of other types of films. There's, um, it's, it's very much about the brutality of entering this world and, um, and then of being in this world.
3: Are there positive or joyful depictions of sex in Davies? Deep
4: Lucy. Deep um, has that amazing overhead shot of Tom Hiddleston and Rachel Weisz having sex, and it's completely joyful. Um, and it's this amazing gesture where Rachel Weisz um, licks... Another example of a, a naked man and a clothed woman. Um, she she licks Tom Hiddleston's shoulder from behind, and it's this strange, mechanically erotic thing that, it, that it's just so unforgettable. And it really was just, apparently, on the set. It was kind of... he was He was dictating, you know, what to do, and he just said why don't you try licking his shoulder? <laughs> and it, and it works in this really strange way. But she's from behind. So um, it's, she has all the power in that scene, which is interesting. But it, it, is, um, it is probably the, mo- the only I mean, I mean, joyful sex Because I love that sex film. I'm
3: sort of obsessed with that film, and it's the one that comes to mind. And then I'm like, well, there must be something else, but there's really nothing else.
4: I think that I th- I have to think. I think that's it. I mean, it's because that movie is so much about um, a woman's sexual pleasure, because she chooses to leave her husband for an attractive younger man. I mean, it, it goes south, but the, the the motivation for doing that is, is, is very much like she wants this, she desires this, she sees this man, she wants this man, and she gives everything up to be with him. So, for the movie to open with that kind of a scene, I th- I think it just ties in really nicely with the with the themes of the movie and what and what it's about but I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tortured S&M imagery in his, first, in his short films. Yeah. Um, so if he's dealing with himself and his own sexual past, it tends to be um, violent and sort of um, secretive and locked away and shameful.
0: What, well, what, in, what enraptures you about Deep Blue Sea, Eric? What does that bring up for you? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's therapy time.
3: What does it bring it's prob- up? For it's you? probably related to why I relate to possession so much. But I mean, there's a <laughs> no. There's I mean, the it's interesting. It's the it's the sort of film that um, I find in watching it, but then also in revisiting it, how I identify with each of the three major characters so strongly. Um, there's something about how finely dramatized those those characters are um, and those relationships. Be- you know, the sort of the, the the relationships between everybody in that triangle. Um, that I find just immensely moving, and I think the three performers are remarkable. Um, and and there and I think there's some, all the things. I mean, it's it's such a Terrence Davies film, and all the things that Michael writes and and speaks about so articulate about, particularly about his cinema in general. But it's something. It's somehow all those things bent in a certain way that overlap with things that I respond to even more so. Um, and I think maybe it's because there is there's a romance to it, and there is. Um uh, yeah, I guess I guess there's something that's particular about that that story that I find that much more compelling, the sort of sense of, of liberation and imprisonment at the same time. Um, and instead of them being simultaneous and tragic, they're separated a little bit. I feel like there is true liberation that goes on in that film. There's also like imprisonment um, of the heart and of uh, you know, an uh, imprisonment of being a woman in that moment in time. Um, but there's, 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 there's a, just, there's enough of a, of a distance between those two things that, that there's just, it, it could go on forever. Like I could watch that story forever and watch these three people bounce off of each other in that way, because those relationships just mean a lot to me. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. Oh, no, totally. Absolutely. And I could, I could watch Rachel Vice you know, stare at a heating device. For and you'd get for, to. For a really long time. Yes. I'd be happy to.
4: <laughs> yeah, I know that I feel the same way, um, and yeah, that moves, of course, every time Davies makes a movie, somebody somewhere says this is too slow, the shots go on for too long, but um, I mean, it's always complete joy for me, but especially that movie, I just, she is just, um, I, I, there's something about the way the camera is trained on her that brings out something in her that I maybe didn't even appreciate before when I had seen her. A is lot this, of movies cut around is how we're performances. This different, I, I feel like I saw that I always lo- I always liked watching her, but... Was there, has there been a movie that just kept the camera on her that intensely for that amount of time? I and mean, she's also basically in almost every shot of the movie.
3: Well, it's one of those things where I think it could have been meant even more, but it was sort of like in terms of cinephiles, it was mixed um and that's kind of always been the case with him if there was a if there was a of a, a tidal wave of people uh, t- writing about it and exulting in it then i think that you have a star and you have that type of storytelling it might work but i think that's often been the case but i think that's
4: i think that's what's happening maybe a little bit and why his career has, is on this upswing i think that there is a i think that cinephile culture has obviously changed drastically over the past 10 years and there's more of a community um i don't want to say everyone's like-minded because that can be a problem but th- i think there is a sense of a new generation of cinephiles and and, a, and and an older generation maybe coming together to support important artists important cinematic artists and i think that davies is maybe the a recipient of that well it's well sulovsky's an example of somebody who unfortunately it happens after he dies yeah. that happens a lot online and that was happening a little with rivet too. Though I think because of the out one re-release, there had been a, a, a resurgence of Revet interest. So it's nice when it happens of some, to somebody who's living. <laughs> so um, it's, it is very nice to see the, the groundswell of support for, for Davies um, over the past couple of years. I think that I think that that's happening, and I think that uh, the responses to Quiet Passion in Berlin are more testament to that. And it's interesting that I saw the. You say there there tend to be mixed responses, and there are. But I've noticed pretty down the line to that one, which I haven't seen yet. I wish I had been in Berlin, but I wasn't. Um, that the negative reviews were trade publications and the positive, ecstatically positive responses were cinephiles. Um, pretty down the line.
0: But that's sort of the function of the trades to be like, well, will this sell? But...
4: I know, that's what's so irritating about it. I mean, and then it,
0: that can kill or make a film. which is
3: ridiculous. Right, who's the audience for this? Yeah. It's so odd that that still is how things get talked about like, uh, evaluating whether something will sell 24 hours before it might sell. Like, it's just so strange to, well, to, no, I mean, to, like to prognosticate hours. or guess that or even dictate that. It's just, I still, it still baffles me. Well,
4: also, because things have changed so much in the world of distribution and and <laughs> how thing, and ex, and exhibition, I, I, what are these questions? I mean, movies are finding audiences in totally different ways these days. I mean... Is that how, like Stranger by the Lake, that great movie that came out a couple of years ago, um, Alan Girardi, what good would a trade sort of review have done for a movie like that? But it's actually a really big hit on streaming. P- people people want to see it and they respond to it. And there are a lot of movies like that, art films. People are watching interesting art films on Netflix, on Amazon. So these, these sorts of variety in Hollywood Reporter reviews just don't make sense anymore.
3: I was also going to say, in terms of the groundswell, it doesn't hurt to have a, a writer of Michael stature writing a fantastic book about Davies as well. And I think that there are probably people who are accessing that book and ready for the next several films of Davies because of of, of catching up to his work that way.
4: Well, that's very nice of you. I hope that's true. I'm not sure. Like, tell that to the 32 people who read it. But um, <laughs> I think that um, I think that it's also an incredibly dated book now because. He's making movie after movie after movie, so if you want to read about his career up through the Deep Blue Sea. Well, he you mentioned Sunset
3: book. Song at, at the end of he the book, does. so it, it includes Sunset Song.
0: Well, on that note, maybe we can go down the line and, in the spirit of last ten films, say a film that we saw recently. Oh, look at everyone's faces. Do people know what
2: last ten films are? I mean, you might want to identify what Oh, the last yes.
0: Ten films. So, for, for the loving audience that is here now last 10 films is a ongoing feature in film comment it's in the beginning of the magazine where we ask uh, a director or an actor uh, the last 10 films that they've seen and hopefully they don't lie and try and make themselves look smart all of terence davies hilariously can i spoil it all of his i won't say which ones they are because i can't remember all 10 films but the most recent one he saw was from 2002, and all the rest were pre-1950.
4: <laughs> That's not a surprise. At all.
0: That is not surprising. Oh, it's hilarious. I, I, I 2002,
4: at the, actually, is shockingly recent. What, <laughs> what was it, for God's I sake? I can't
0: remember.
3: Was it but The I... Hours? <laughs> but, but to his defense, sure. he didn't last see it in 1950. Like, the things he just recently saw, yeah, so but they he's were all like, early. Yeah, so he's still. like, still. You know, he's me. like, <laughs> little, I don't know, I just want to clarify that he hadn't seen movies since 2002. Yeah, I can call up a list here.
4: No, it's that, yeah, if he chooses to
3: watch a movie, it's going to vary. I mean, uh, yeah,
4: come
0: on, obviously.
3: You need to start your direction, because oh I did this last week God. with you, and I have to come up with another f- film, and he's is too... Re-
0: You're so, like, bitter we're about last week. We're all just buying time here. Let <laughs> it go. <laughs> well, start
3: a, I, I have one ready if you need
0: it. What, oh, wait, do you have his? But,
2: I, but I'm sorry, I'm looking up Terrence Davis. Oh, sure.
1: Okay, so I I feel the same way as the last time I did the podcast. Totally surprised and I feeling again <laughs> caught a little bit that the film is another sort of kind of seventies <laughs> euro exploitation. <That's, laughs> um, I the last film that I watched that. Uh, sticks it out in my mind is this film, and I'm forgetting the name of the director, a Spanish director called A Bell From Hell, or The Bells. It's kind of a random film, but it's very, very good. Um, it, it stars Renaud Verlet, a French actor. Um, and it's just, um, it's one of those films from that time period that is little has a little bit of like a it's it's just totally unique it has kind of a giallo kind of eerie style to it it's very very well made it's shot just like it looks amazing um it's hard to find and uh the the director apparently died making the film shooting the final scene he fell from the bell tower oh my god wow or perhaps jumped you know, it was the last scene, the last, so the, oh, no, the, the, the film came scene. out, and it's really good. No. It's really good.
2: And I'm curious, I don't know if this should be a part of the, fe- the feature or not, but I was curious how you watched it. Was it a illicit source?
1: No. See, this is the same as the last podcast where my film was tentacles. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and then I got caught that again. That was great. I, you have the option to lie. Yeah, you don't have to say anything. Okay.
2: That's why I said we don't have to make it a part. Oh, you
1: can. No, I'm saying you can out. lie about what you saw. I do. <laughs> I've been watching something called Bizarre TV, and uh, <laughs> I'm kind of blowing it up a little bit right now, but it's a Roku channel. Oh, well, that's, and, that's, that's interesting. But when I see a film on there that I like a lot, I then buy it. And that happened with Belfort from Hell, it happened with Tentacles, it happens with a lot of films that I discover on there, and the channel is apparently run by one woman, um, who's like a, a single mother living in Alabama, I think, and she she does the channel. I'm so, I'm so glad and I asked. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> <laughs> that was <Bizarre>. shockingly fruitful. <laughs> that yeah. was a great answer. <laughs> I feel a weird blowing it up because, uh, I don't, it's great. I'm obsessed with it. If you you do the research, if you you need to have a Roku, Mm -hmm. um, you will discover the gem of Bizarre TV and Bizarre TV Underground, because now she has two channels. Her Mistress Rhonda.
3: Mistress Rhonda. (gasps) I love it. I love that. So public (laughs) access.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Great.
2: Nick? Next. Oh, well, mine's easy. I saw the third part of Night. Uh, which in the, I, I saw that in the uh, Zulawski series. Um, and I had last seen it at the BAM series, which is a few years ago, where they did everything. Um, and it was just, it, I mean, even now, the same things were just bowling me over. Speaking of birth scenes, that's another doozy. Uh, For in, sure. In that one. Yeah, film. Can from... we
0: have a birth scenes podcast?
2: I, I'm sure we Live. could. Live,
1: everyone come back. I'm sure
2: we could. <laughs> wind or water, baby moving. <laughs> um, so that's fine. I and, watched and that
1: one again just the other oh night, yeah. and and i forgot how he he intercuts it with an actual birth. Right. It's, yeah. I guess. Yeah. That's you right. know, he'd, yeah. he'd, he cuts it's a birth in, scene, yeah. and it's very Jaworski and expressionistic. You then know, all it's of a sudden, just yeah. kind of she's very odd. It's almost like she's orgasmic. You know, it's in her face, and it's yeah. it's good. But then all of a sudden, cut to close up. You know, baby. Right. coming out. Yeah. Margaret's doing uh. some great gestures right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, but um, it's, it's, uh, I was surprised by that. Yeah,
2: yeah. I guess I, I partially repressed that, but that did happen. <laughs> yeah. and, and I saw that across the street at the wonderful Walter Reed Theater, mm-hmm. which is actually celebrating its 25th anniversary, I believe. <sighs> I, I love, I don't know. I've been going there, I, I remember going there oh and taking God. my mom... To see Clerks as part of New Directors. <laughs> <laughs> at least I think it was there. And I didn't know. I just thought, oh, I heard it was something cool. Anyway, and the rest is history.
0: Wow. <laughs> Did you like my, it? My mom
2: swiftly disowned me. <laughs> and from then on, I was only allowed to watch Britcoms,
5: unfortunately.
1: <laughs> I took my mom to see Hands on a Hardbody at a <laughs> that's festival. That's <laughs> good. I don't know why I just liked it so much. I was like, my another see podcast. not... Well so, so
3: just last week, um, I took my. Uh, I worked in the Museum of the Moving Image, and my parents and, and, and nieces and brother had never really been there before, and so they came, and there was a day where I was showing a bunch of movies, like be sure come, I'll show you around. It was, it was wonderful. But the film that was there it was showing when they happened to be there was *Man with a Movie Camera*, mm-hmm. which on one hand is like, oh, that's delightful, it's wonderful, it's one of the great films. But it's also like, I, I don't know when anybody in my family has seen anything a Soviet silent film. Like it's just, it's so outside of where they come from. But I think it went well. They all kind of liked it. And the one who's the hardest. My, my dad loved it. My dad just kept That's talking great. about it. Like, I only know of him as watching, you know, sports. <laughs> and, and he loved Man <laughs> with the Movie Camera. So that was great. But I, I mean, the, I, I just came from there because I just watched uh, Forest of Bliss, which we're showing as part of our Seed Big documentary series. And that was wonderful to see in 35 millimeter print. But uh, so I'm going to, I'm almost, so I'm already using up my time talking about more than one fi- uh, film. But re- going off of your bizarre TV source, uh, last. I because I watch a, I watch a lot of films for work I watch a lot of films f- to to write um, I yet I'm also of a certain age that I love turning on the TV and seeing what the hell's on there mm-hmm. um, that I love like these bad channels in between channels on public TV yes <laughs> um, and so last week I watched. Uh, uh, Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean. Jimmy Dean, which I'd never seen before. It's an altman I'd never seen, and like it's on it's on movies. You know, the movies channel, which it's is with like an exclamation point. Seven point two, maybe or whatever whatever channel this is right near the game show channel, which I watch more than any other channel. Um, buzzer, but but the but that it, 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 I loved seeing it there, and I watched way more of that movie than to date I've ever chosen to watch, um, and so I I still love that the the pleasure of being shown something rather than having an infinite choice of, of, of what to watch when. Or
1: getting dropped into it and trying to figure out what it is that you're watching. Is exactly. It's really fun. Yeah.
3: I love that too. Yeah, And there's really, there's no device. Uh, you can go to TV Guide, obviously, but there's no like oh, I'm going to hit this app that's going to make this easy for me. I I've can actually spend some time
1: a master Googler. <laughs> I was I'm like, yeah, detective on Google.
3: Well, that one was an easy one because it's... Uh, um, if you spend five minutes watching it, you can recognize it maybe as the way that Altman would shoot something, but Cher yeah. is in so few films, and it's so clearly before Silkwood, she's like, wait, what could this possibly, of course it has to be that movie. Um, and she's fantastic in it, as is Kathy Bates, as is, anyway.
4: Interesting side note, I was just rewatching, rewatching Cher's Oscar speech from 1987, <laughs> and she says, she thanks Meryl Streep, who's in the theater, because she was nominated against her that year. She She thanks her, because she says she was in her first movie with her, meeting Silkwood. And I thought, no, your first movie was Come Back to the Five and Dime Chimney and Jimmy Dean.
3: Well, no, it was her comeback, m- comeback movie. She was in her, ser- various other sort of smaller roles. She oh, was she was in, in, it was
4: her first like, major role, wasn't it? Well, in almonds film. Cher's
0: first, first uh, role was Chastity, which was directed by Sonny Bono.
4: Hence the... Yeah, it has. Yeah, I don't know about Chastity. Well, anyway, it's strange for her to say. My f- Silkwood was her That's first so film. Weird. She said that. Anyway, <laughs> so the last thing I watched was Cher's Oscar speech. <laughs> um, uh, no, uh, last thing I saw was on the Silver Globe at Film Comment selects right before this, and uh, but it, to mention something that we didn't talk about already, um, River of Grass, Kelly Reichert's first film. Um, made in 1994. There's a new restoration of it, and it's really, really good. And it's maybe up there. Maybe my favorite of her movies is one of my favorite films that she's done. I had never seen it before. And um, you know you would watch something from the mid-'90s, like an independent film from the mid-'90s, and it was shot on 16, and you just are instantly transported. It's great whole other world. Larry Fessenden Mm -hmm. looking like... Sexy, sort of like a sex symbol. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> strange, um, but River of Grass is great. there's gonna, Oscilloscope is actually going to be doing a, a they're gonna be re-releasing it. So I highly recommend it.
0: Um, and then to close, I saw uh, another film made by a woman, but in the 1980s, uh, Variety by Bette Gordon. I uh, really loved that movie, and it was so it was such. It's like it's such a cliche to say that oh, the city is a character, New York City is a character, but this is really, you know, this is really, New York City is, you see these amazing parts of New York City, you know, shot on, with her, with a little bolex, with, you know, a regular 16 camera, and just sort of, like, it flips, uh, you know, it's about this woman who goes to work at a porn theater on 42nd Street, taking tickets, and then she sort of gets, uh, it's like a it's like an inverse of uh, uh, vertigo almost where she gets seduced. She, she sort of, there's this mysterious man who tries to take on a date and she decides to follow him when he suddenly leaves and it takes her into this interesting world and she pursues him all over the city and into Jersey. And Is there
1: some Laura Mulvey connection to that film? I can't remember.
0: It's all a rich tapestry, yeah.
1: but <laughs> yes, I think
3: so. It's interesting to revisit. Uh, I, I mean, I'd l- I love to see that and hope to see that in a couple weeks then, because uh, there are films like that that are are sort of indie, are part of like an indie canon. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, sort of a, of that of of a certain era, that I think the like f- they get they, they were talked about so much and written about so much, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a Laura multi connection. But uh, in a way, kind of deadens those movies because they're not they're they're not canonical. They're not masterpieces. They're not meant to be. They don't really exist in that in that conversation. But that's sort of how, certainly I would say maybe in the 90s, looking back on those films that were 10, 15 years earlier, how they were discussed. And it's kind of great to revisit them now at, at a distance from that, where you see and I think River of Grass is like that too where it, it just it, it, it gets to play as it's supposed to play. It's supposed to. It gets to have the energy that it has rather than have this freighted energy of being important and an important film at a certain moment, which is maybe true but uh, I don't know it's, it's great seeing those films freed of that baggage
0: thank you all for coming appreciate it thanks to our wonderful guests thanks
3: for <laughs> thank staying you.
0: I'm gonna bump up the applause and post don't worry <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to the film comment podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommentcom slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.